Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 4. I'm your host, Casey Tigert. I'm an author, pastor, and spiritual director. If I said to you the word belong, and even uh, maybe put it in the form of a question, what does it mean to belong? How would you answer that? Belonging is one of those things that is at the core of every human being. We, we want to be a part of something. I actually believe the first line of the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, is actually answering a human question about belonging. Who do I belong to? Where do I belong? But in a world where social relationships are hard, in, in a world like we've lived in for the past year or so, where we've been distanced in one way or another from each other, belonging can be really difficult. Add to that the fact that there are circumstances that come up that we have no control over. The loss of a loved one, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a community. Sometimes mental illness can distance us from other people. Maybe a shift in our theology, a change in the way we believe God actually is and works and moves in the world can move us to the outside of a group of people that we always thought were family. The heart of the conversation today with author Charlotte Donlan is just about this idea of belonging. From the book that she wrote called The Great Belonging, we talk a lot about Charlotte's own experience about finding place. The last few years have been a struggle for her from a faith community standpoint, but also as she's battled with bipolar disorder, from a how do I fit in relationships knowing that I wrestle with this mental illness, this challenge. This podcast was actually recorded last at the end of 2020, uh, and I had every plan to let it be the last episode of season three, but after having this conversation, after listening back to it a couple of times, I realized I didn't want this to get lost in the end of the year when everybody's doing different things and maybe was off their podcast habit. And so I saved this conversation for season four. And so I hope that you'll hear in that the, the need. This is a very important conversation for all of us. Those of us who are part of churches that want to welcome people want to welcome each other. Those of us who are walking through seasons of deconstruction and reconstruction, and we feel that ache of where do I belong? I, I can't sing the songs I used to sing. I can't be in the groups I used to be in. My prayer is that this conversation will be a helpful guide for you as you move through that time. And so I invite you to listen to my conversation with author and spiritual director, Charlotte Donlan. Charlotte, I appreciate you taking time. This is, uh, this is a a conversation I've been looking forward to after reading some of your books. So thanks for thanks for being here. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here, and I'm excited for our conversation. This is the beautiful part of, you know, the beautiful part of being able to do this is from Chicago to Alabama, we're having this across the airwaves conversation. And that's what I find fascinating about all these interviews is we're all in different places and different times, but there's some constant things. and you know, one of the constants for me and one of the constants of the podcast is talking about wisdom. And so where I like to start these conversations is with this question, if you, from your own experience and your own life and where you are today, if you had to define the word wisdom, 
where would where would you start? Where would be the beginning point for you in that? Mm. Um, well, I could start in many different places, but I mean, as a believer, I would want to start with the Bible, with scripture, with the truths of the gospel. Um, not necessarily the book of Proverbs, <laughs> although that might work <laughs> for me. It's more about, um, a truth that can explain everything and that can be true all the time. So I think for me, that's, that's what wisdom is. It has to be something that can apply across the, can be applied across the board. When you think about something like that, whether it's an idea or a thought or something we cling to, how have you, where have you seen that in your own life? Where has that wisdom like come to life in your own experience? Um, for me, um, over the past 25 years or so since I've um, been a Christian, I mean, those are the words I know to use for my faith journey. Um, learning how to have a um, foundation and robust theology of grace has transformed my life. Um, so the idea that um, all is gift, all is grace helps me find my place in this world and among others. Um, for me, it's kind of the defining um truth of who I am in Christ and who others are in Christ. Although I don't necessarily want to believe everyone needs Jesus as much as I do, um, or that I need, let me rephrase that, that I need Jesus as much as other people do. That's what I don't want to believe. <laughs> um, so just a strong theology of grace is, is what helps me understand the world and um other people so for me that's kind of a base for wisdom but also um i would say since my kids were little so for the past you know 18 years since my daughter is soon to be graduating and just turned 18 um the wisdom of the um benedictine tradition has been huge in my life um as a young mom i gained wisdom um with regard to being present in the moment um showing hospitality to not only neighbors and strangers but also to my children um seeing them as um as guests in my life. I don't know if that sounds right, but like honoring them, even as young children, as guests worthy of um, my attention and presence. Um, and other Benedictine, uh, you know, ideas have been important in the last, um, several years, not only in my family, but just as I think about what it looks like to be 
um, someone who loves God and loves people. I think that's, I think that's fascinating from a, from the perspective of a parent, because so often parenting is seen as I, I think the language that I've I hear more often is stewardship or um, raising. You know, this very like active, somewhat forceful kind of language, and you know, certain circles the the parenting act is very forceful and heavy on discipline, but that idea of of a grace that invites your kids as guests. I think that's profound. There's a gentleness in that that really appeals to me. And my wife and I, with our daughter, we've always talked about from the beginning, we wanted to invite her into our lives instead of, you know, having to break everything. And, and of course, every, a lot of things change. You can't have a kid and be like, oh, okay, nothing changed. Right. Uh, we, had a do- we had a dog this fall and everything changed around the dog. So, I mean, <laughs> when you, a child is like twice that. Yeah. So that grace of belonging, where where did the Benedictine influence begin? For, how did that come into not only your parenting, but it sounds like it's infiltrated, not infiltrated, it's, it's, it's informed and inspired and shaped a lot of the parts of your life. Where did that Benedictine influence come from? Um, when I was a young mother, um, I was um, at a church that my husband and I helped plant um, in 2000, 2001, the official date is fuzzy, um, because we met as just a group for several months. And then there was the real church service or whatever. Um, and a group of women in that church who were friends of mine had all been reading Kathleen Norris's the cloister walk. So that was my first, and one of those women, a dear friend of mine, um, Marguerite passed that book along to me after it had kind of, you know, circled this group of women and they invited me into their circle of friendship um, around the time I was reading this book. So these were conversations we were having um, just about this new way of seeing and new way of being um, in our faith that was different from kind of the evangelical circles that we had inhabited for several years. Um, now I was a relatively new Christian and, um, but I had been in a very evangelical, um, church, you know, for five or six years at that point, maybe a little longer. Um, another author we read at that time was Esther DeWall. And I want to say we had a couple of copies of um, the Benedictine rule that we would read sometimes um, passages and, you know, discuss it and whatever. I'm sure there are other books, you know, there are all kinds of books out there that um, uh, kind of explore Benedictine um, faith and spiritual practices. So I'm sure there are others that we read, but those are the ones that come to mind. What I find interesting is that the topic that you deal with in your book, the great belonging, this idea of belonging is underneath everything that is monastic. Mm-hmm. So every monastic community, whether it's Benedictines or Dominicans or Franciscans, take this vow to be a part of, like that's the core of it is to be a part of something. And that, that being a part put that in air quotes, nobody can see me do that, but being a part, uh, is what ends up shaping and forming 
um, people. So living with this Benedictine influence for a while, you've talked about parenting. Are there other areas where you've seen that, that stream, that line of thinking, that being with shape? Or are there things formed in you that wouldn't have been without that? Um, yeah, around that same time, um, my husband and I were small group leaders at this church and this church we were at for 15 or 16 years, um, didn't have Sunday school or anything. I mean, there was a kind of a Bible study, short-term Bible studies here or there, but it was basically worship services in small groups. So we were small group leaders from the beginning. Um, the idea of, Christian community and um, like a deep sense of Christian community was um, taught by the pastor and he preached about it and he, um, you know, met with small group leaders and we had speakers come in. So this church was very much a church of small groups, I guess is the language we used back then. Um, And through those gatherings, and meals and um, conversations, we experienced um, a belonging to the people in our groups. And then even beyond our small groups, like, you know, a couple of groups, we get together for dinner or whatever, and we'd have mixers. (laughs) Um, So it, and I think when we're all belonging in some way, it's easier for us to belong to the others we don't belong to. Does that make sense? <laughs> so if we're all belonging, we have a sense of belonging in our small groups, then people in other groups, in different groups, kind of have a sense of belonging because they feel rooted in this other space or to this other group of people. Um so, and even after we left that church, we have led some small groups here and there. And the idea of um, Christian community has just been huge for us um, as adults. Now, my children are not like, haven't ever been in a youth group really. Um, so we've been navigating that, trying to discern, you know, what their belonging is to the church and right now I can just say they both have friends who are Christians who go to other churches and we're even in between churches right now and then within our family there are bonds um, based on our faith and that um, form the foundation for conversations we have about sermons or different things, you know, politics or current events and, um, or something that I might be experiencing that I'm sharing with them about a struggle or, um, you know, I had some mental health issues this summer. So, you know, I think I talked to them about that. And in those conversations, we try to bring in, um, you know, how does this intersect with the Christian faith? How am I responding in light of, Um, what I believe and how, you know, how do I need to confess and repent in light of what I believe, you know, those conversations definitely happen. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but the idea of belonging is definitely um, something that has been important to me. 
um, for several years um, in my family and my friendships and in my local congregations that we're members of, but I didn't really have the language of belonging and loneliness until about two or three years ago when I started working on this book. I think one thing you said, I mean, everything you said is is beautiful, but the one thing that that struck me was this idea, was the idea of there's, there's stronger senses, a stronger sense of belonging when you you talked about groups and because one group belongs, they know the other, that it's almost like the distinction of who I belong to actually makes it deeper, um, which has its plus sides. Uh, I could also see that having having a really strong negative if it turns into unhealthy belonging, codependency or groupthink yes. or or things like that. I wonder though, as you as you began to explore this idea of belonging, when I think of Christianity, when I think of faith, the idea of groups and being a part of a group of people seems really natural. But in order to talk about belonging, you had to first talk about loneliness, which was that, how difficult was that to begin to talk about loneliness from a faith perspective for you? Well, for me, it was freeing because I finally had a language to put around something that I had experienced my whole life. Um, you know, since I was a child, I've felt... Um, mainly two different types of loneliness. And I think there are all kinds of definitions for loneliness and all kinds of experiences for loneliness that can even shift based on our circumstances or our season of life. But the two primary ways I experience loneliness are, um, one is what Dr. Tom Varner, I think is how you say his name, calls core loneliness. And that's a sense of separation from God, basically, um, that will only be eased in heaven. So even though I have an intimate relationship with God, I still feel that, that separation, that not yet, not yetness of, of what I will um, know one day. Um, The other type of loneliness that, I, um, have experienced a lot is, is kind of a differentness or being othered. Um, I don't fit into boxes very well. Um, so, you know, like in the evangelical church, there are certain (laughs) things sometimes that, you know, women are expected to do and say, and how we're supposed to act. And, um, I don't necessarily fit into those boxes. And I don't think, I think there are plenty of other people who don't fit into them either. Um, and I do think some people more naturally, it just works for them. So I'm not judging those who kind of fall in line with certain expectations, um, culturally and from the church. But for me, (laughs) it's just been difficult, you know, to have certain expectations placed on me as a Christian woman, especially a Christian woman in the South. Um, and, and like not fall in line, you know, and it, it feels more unnatural to contort myself to be who I'm expected to be. 
and again, I'm not saying I'm special enough to where I'm the only person who feels this way. It's just that there are large, um, forces that, um, create this kind of system of expectations that don't feel right to me. Mm. You talk about this, and I believe this is you reflecting on the theologian you mentioned. It talks about how this loneliness, this core loneliness, manifests even in relationships. How have you noticed that in your in your own life? Because I think there are probably people listening who, you know, people of faith who may be struggling in relationships and are trying to form their responses, how they wisely respond to their spouse or their partner or their whoever they're dating. Um, how have you seen that core loneliness emerge again in relationships with other people? Yeah, so I think a lot of people still feel different forms of loneliness, even though we have, you know, meaningful relationships with friends and partners and God and our church, you know, members and things like that. Um, and I think that's one reason loneliness is difficult because it's like, well, if all of these things are as great as they seem, why am I still lonely? And I think there are several, like I'm, some people may hate that I can't give any straight answers um, because loneliness is just so malleable. It's hard to say, okay, this is the definition and these are the 10 things to do to get rid of your loneliness. That's just not how I approach the topic. Um, but within my experiences of loneliness, I can have a great marriage, which I, I have a wonderful marriage with my husband. We've been married almost 23 years and um, there are times when I feel alone in my marriage and I write about it a bit in the book. Some of it is expressed um, through our vocations. Like our, I'm a writer and a spiritual director and he is a sales executive for a technology company. And there's not a whole lot of crossover there. And because we, um, we spend a lot of time doing our work by the end of the day when we're hanging out and, you know, we are tea drinkers. Now we're drinking our hot tea in, in the evening and talking. It feels like a lot to start to share with him something about my day from a spiritual direction and writing standpoint, because I know he's trying to recover from his sales executive technology stuff. And it's like our brains and minds and souls are so full that, we both, I mean, he does it too. Like we hesitate to move toward each other in that area sometimes. And, um, you know, my work is a huge part of who I am. I mean, it's, I mean, I have a very holistic view of vocation and life and, you know, time and energy and how we use our time and energy. And, um, I think about this stuff all the time. I think about what I'm reading and what I'm writing and how God is present in my life or in other people's lives. And, um, to be able to connect with my husband in a significant way takes effort and we have to be intentional about, um, making space for that. 
um, to be able to connect so that he hears me and I hear him about our vocations. Now it, it shows up in other ways too. Um, and I do think loneliness, you know, if certain relationships are kind of off or are lacking in some way, it will be expressed. It's possible. It could be expressed in loneliness in other relationships. So um, right now where we are in Birmingham, we don't have a ton of friends who are our age in our stage of life. We have several friends who are younger. We have other friends, kind of a new couple, kind of friend dating who's around our age and in the same stage of life. But we don't have any deep, intimate friendships with people our age and our stage of life. And I think that's affecting our marriage some because um, we're missing something that I think we were made for. And so that will affect the whole. Um, I'm trying to think of another example. <laughs> um, I also, I mean, I, I, I wrote about this at some point with the pandemic. So when we aren't as connected to our neighbors, even, um, or when we aren't as connected to our worship, worshiping community, it will affect our other relationships. If we feel separated from God for some reason, whether it's a real separation or a perceived separation, it will affect all of our other relationships. And with regard to core loneliness, um, I do believe all loneliness um, points to our desire to belong to God primarily. Um, I think the other two primary belongings are to ourselves and to other people. And then there are all kinds of things that can deepen those three main belongings. Um, so if we feel a sense of disconnection from ourselves, God, or other people, it's possible that the reason is that there's a sort of disconnection in one of those other areas. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And mentioning the pandemic, definitely, that has definitely changed. And, and I'm speaking just from personal, mm -hmm. from my own personal viewpoint in our life, my wife and I, and, and our family's life, the pandemic has changed how we, how we think about relationships. Uh, I was talking with someone the other day and said, I, I'm recognizing how many connections I have that are based simply on the fact that we are often in the same place at the same time. Right. Because now without being in the same place at the same time, those, those are not the people that I'm, and, and I like them. They're, they're good people. They're kind people. They're people I like being around, but the people that you are texting on a regular basis or you're reaching out to on a regular basis, those are like the deep significant ones. And I think this pandemic has definitely pressed that. And, and so when it comes to belonging, I think it's, it, it seems like, and this is what I see in your writing too, it is always augmented by context, where we are. Uh, one of the big pieces for you that it's, it seems to me that shifts the story in the book is in 2007, um, you were diagnosed with uh, bipolar disorder. And that seems to be a hinge in the book where your understanding of belonging started to shift or you, you reflected on how it shifts. Talk a little bit about how did things change 
after your diagnosis and the, the, the time period after that where you wrestled with, with bipolar disorder? Yeah, I would say that um, experiencing um, a mental health crisis um, is a huge way that you experience a dis- disconnection or a, um, an unbelonging to yourself primarily. So with bipolar disorder, um, I couldn't control what my brain was doing. I couldn't control my responses to my brain. And um, it felt like, you know, I had at certain points hallucinations and paranoia. And to experience that (laughs) is to feel very alone, like in many ways, but especially from yourself. And I, I was kind of thrown for a huge loop with that. Like even after I recovered, um, it was a lot to process, you know, like what does it mean to recover in ways that I can belong to myself again? Um, and, and then it looked different because it, by that point I was in a different person, you know, after, um, three or four months of mania and six to eight months of significant depression. Um, So that was one of the um, ways I was alone was just being separated from myself. Um, I felt separated from God um, at first, but then it became um, my relationship with God and my uh, prayer life became my primary belonging um, that um, sustained me and held me through my illness and, and beyond. I, I don't think I would be who I am if I was never diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Um, I don't think I would be a spiritual director. I don't, and I'm not saying, Oh, you know, <laughs> all things work out for the good or, you know, whatever that verse is like, I'm not dismissing the suffering that comes with mental illness. I'm just saying on this side of it, I can see how God has been at work in my life through this suffering. Um, and I'm not dismissing my suffering or anyone else's suffering. I'm just saying, this is my experience. And by the grace of God, my, um, living with mental illness has, has formed me into who I am now in ways that um, help me serve God and serve people. Um, and I think that helps me belong actually, the more I think about it, like coming into myself because of my um, dependence on God and um the Psalms were a huge part of that reading the Psalms and, um, listening to the daily office, um, having more of a liturgical relationship with scripture, um, provided a sense of belonging to God that I hadn't known before. Um, I mean, I had read the Psalms before, but I needed the Psalms. The Psalms gave me words that I could not form. The Psalms gave me words that my brain couldn't imagine. You know, I was so disconnected from how, from reality that the Psalms gave me a truth and a, um, 
something to hold on to that I knew was real. Um, with regard to other people, uh, bipolar disorder definitely affects relationships. Um, the divorce rate is huge for people who live with bipolar disorder. Um, I had a couple of friends that just had to back away. They're like, you know, this is too hard for me for you to have bipolar disorder. It's like, okay, <laughs> see you later. Um, <laughs> which I still, I can't really understand except that they were having significant mental health issues in some ways. I mean, kind of a depression thing might've been happening or anxiety. And it was like, they just couldn't walk with me through my suffering at that point in their lives. Um, but it also helped me connect with people because when you're admitted to an inpatient psychiatric facility, um, at least for me, I had two choices. I could pretend like everything was okay. And this was, you know, like covered up and pretend like it didn't happen or I could embrace it and be honest about it and be vulnerable about what I was experiencing. And, um, I chose the second option because it seemed easier to me. I was like, it would take way too much energy to pretend this isn't real. <laughs> um, and through that vulnerability, and honesty about what I was experiencing, I have, um, or I began to have more meaningful conversations with people and um, deeper relationships and friendships with people. Um, so again, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure God could have done that in my life through another means, but for me, it happened to be, um, living with bipolar disorder, being diagnosed with it, recovering, um, and learning how to navigate all of that um, in my relationships with other people. Is there, uh, you know, the people who said, I can't, I can't do this and walked away aside, put them aside for mm -hmm. a moment. Is there direction or guidance you would give people who are walking through life with someone who is dealing with mental illness? And how would you guide them in a way that would help the person who is suffering continue to feel like they belong to whether it's a family or a relationship or a friendship what what is the great need that you sensed and that you can now give you know talked about how this really helped inform how you love god and others how can you how would you help guide them to continue to help that person know that they belong and then to understand that they belong even as they as struggle with some of these mental health challenges yeah, so I've been on both sides of this equation um, as someone living with mental illness and as someone who has um, walked with others as they are in a mental health crisis. And for people who are trying to love people who are struggling with mental illness, I think the most important thing is to keep checking on them, even if they don't respond to you. <laughs> um when I was sick, and that's what I say, I was like, I, when I was sick in 2007, um, 
I don't think my church leadership even really checked on me and it would have, maybe they did once and I didn't respond. And that was the end of it for eight months. I think especially pastoral leadership, close friends, um, keep pursuing those who are drowning. They may not respond. They may just say, thank you. (laughs) But I think we need to be willing to initiate more often when others are in, in hard places. And I don't think that only applies to mental health struggles. I think it can apply to just about anything. Um, you know, it's not going to hurt anything to keep checking on somebody. (laughs) Another thing that's important is to be willing to just be present without talking. (laughs) Um, that was huge. You know, the, the friends that were able to sit with me without expecting me to explain what I was feeling or explain what was going on or without them feeling like they had to fix things and make me feel better. Um, that was very, um, a loving thing to do because it's awkward, you know, especially back then. I mean, I feel like people talk more about mental illness now than they used to. Um, but still it can be awkward when someone is experiencing something that you know very little about and when it's, you know, not, it's not comfortable, but being willing to sit and even, you know, limit with them, um, is it's huge and to, and to validate their anger, their, um, sadness, the sense of loss, to be able to validate and, and make room for that without needing to fix it, I think is important. Um, also it's important to know that none of us have the responsibility, um, for anyone else's mental health, you know, like, (laughs) I think we have a role, um, when it's someone we love a, a family member or a friend or, um, someone we might be, um, in a pastoral relationship with, but we don't have a responsibility. And I'm so thankful for one of my therapists, Julie Sparkman, who taught me that years ago. I think it was in the context of parenting, actually. Um, just the difference between having a role and having responsibility because the only person responsible for anything or the only being res- responsible using my air quotes, um, is God. And to think that we are responsible is saying that we have way more power than, than any of us have. <laughs> Um, is that enough? I mean, I I feel like I could talk about that a lot, but those are probably the main things, um, that come to mind that I wanted and that I've offered to others. Um, also, I think it's one more, if you've experienced mental illness and you're in a place where you're, you know, stable and healthy, um, it's a really beautiful and wonderful thing to be available for conversations or prayer or just sitting and not talking to those who are in the middle of it now. Um, it's, it can be a beautiful thing for all parties involved. And I actually think churches could, um, kind of utilize that relationship more, um, with proper training and resources. Yeah. 
your your response the one thing in there that it just reminds me i feel like silence the practice of silence and solitude is so critical for people in pastoral leadership if for nothing else than to teach us how to stop talking and be present without having to say something i mean there's so many times as a pastor and as a spirit even as a spiritual director you know this where we just practice silence as a way as part of it it's not that we don't have anything to say it's that this is not a moment to say something um, because our desire to say something is to fix rather than to remain and to be still and to be present and and to give the person to hold space for the other person and, and let them go through what they're going through i do think the one other thing that Taking this from the conversation about mental health, because I know there are some people who that's not where they are. Um, and we've talked about the levels of loneliness and isolation that come out of that. But you include in the book a really interesting uh, a chapter. And I love the way the chapters are laid out. There are thoughts or stories or images, you know, short chapters that really hone in on a particular point around the idea of belonging. But chapter six is a list, um, a list of what you call occasions of loneliness. And I think what I found so interesting about that was reading through it, there were so many just normal, everyday, you know, this isn't I'm away from, this isn't a pandemic. This isn't I'm lost and away from my family. It's it's something in the normal flow of every day. What was it that prompted that that list for you? I'm turning to it in my book so I can yeah. look at it real quick. Um, yeah, I, I first wrote an essay for Mockingbird, um, mbird.com, um, which I love that um, website and publication and community so much. Um, it's a, they're very rooted in, um, a robust theology of grace. So there's some of my people. Um, so I wrote an essay for them. I want to say before I even started the podcast. So before I had a book proposal, um, just in the early stages of when I knew I was experiencing loneliness in different ways and that I had experienced loneliness my whole life in different ways. So I thought I was like, I'm going to make a list of different things that make me lonely. And um, so some of these are um, autobiographical <laughs> and some are thinking about other people I know, or maybe someone I saw at the grocery store, you know, kind of a fan fiction type thing um, that I imagined might be ways people feel lonely. So the original list was on Inbird and then I, um, I revised it, I think added a few things to this list um, in the book in chapter six. Is there is there one that really, when you read back over that list again, is there one that just, it grabs you because of either the reason why you included it or the image it creates? Yes, let me look. Um, I mean, for me, I have always, I mean, even when we were at the church, we helped plant um, 
And even though I worked for the church and we were small group leaders and I like led the women's ministry at different points, like I still felt so different. Like I feel very isolated in my faith sometimes because I'm more open to gray spaces and unanswered questions and mystery than most people are comfortable with, right? Even the people who say they're comfortable with it aren't always very comfortable with it. Or what they say is very different from what they. Um, they'll go. They'll go with you up to a point. Right and past that point, I I cannot be that right comfortable. So, um, and then there were many reasons that we left that church, and and then as we left that church, it's like the differentness and otherness grew, um, and it's been growing since then. And and that's not just because of the church. I think it's because I've grown and my husband's grown. Like we've grown in the ways we view um our faith and um what it means to worship together and be in community with other people in light of the gospel um what it looks like to love our neighbors and to love um our community and beyond so number 14 and 15 as we've visited a few churches over the past few years um one occasion of loneliness is you visit a church for the first time. And then the next occasion of loneliness is you visit a new church for the second time and the third. So I think those um, out of the whole list, and I could probably identify with everyone on that list um, or every item on that list. Those are what um, I feel the most right now. And, you know, during the pandemic, even, and, um, with the um, Black Lives Move, um, Black Lives Matter um, conversations that are taking place, and you know what our churches, how our churches should be responding and confessing and repenting, and um, I, I feel very out of place <laughs> in many ways, um, and very, you know, kind of alone in my faith, and it's been hard. Um, you know, even with COVID and the anti-maskers and, you know, it's strange to feel like you have complete opposite ideas and beliefs from the other parts of your body, right? (laughs) Like I'm connected to these people in ways that are real, you know, we are the body of Christ and we are on different pages, so that's yeah. a lot to process. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to belonging when it, in terms of faith, I think there are so many, and I think a lot of the folks who listen to this podcast probably could, would, would resonate with this. They are a part of a church because of the people in it and maybe not the belief system and maybe not all the people. Um, they may disagree vehemently on so many things, but there's a there's a friendship there. How do we belong in a faith? Because I'm hearing more and more of this. Finding a faith tradition I belong to is becoming increasingly more difficult because it doesn't. There is not a tradition that checks everyone's boxes. Um, and that maybe has more to do with the consumer mentality, which is a whole different podcast. But 
but more from a perspective of who and which which stream do we belong to how do we belong even when we don't know that we fit yeah i mean i could i mean i know the right answer right (laughs) don't do that (laughs) but i also have about 20 answers because it is complicated. And, you know, if we were, if my husband and I were picking a church based on relationships and who we were, you know, meaningfully connected to, we would be at that same church and, and we couldn't stay, um, for, for various reasons. And it's because our, um, our views of what it looks like to love people and love God changed and, and not in a bad way. I think they just deepened and we were um, becoming more aware of certain things that didn't line up with the theology. Like when the actions and the words are that different like are very different it's hard to stay in a place um but i do think there are ways to belong that transcend all of that but when there's spiritual abuse or um oppression or um you know, unchecked power that affects our belongings. You know, even if we have great relationships with people in that church, when those things happen or when, when, um, failures are swept under the rug and, um, not addressed and not used as like teaching tools or (laughs) lessons, of learning what not to do um it 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 makes us feel like we're separated from each other um at least that's what i've experienced so i I mean i don't have a great answer for that because i'm still trying to find out what that means i mean i'm i'm at a hard place with the church i mean i will say since we've been in the episcopal church for about four years um and one reason we came to the Episcopal church is because of the liturgy and the book of common prayer. Um, and, and the weekly, um, communion and things like that, the liturgy, I have noticed and studies, um, have also proved this, that ritual and tradition and, um, common prayers, all bind us to each other and they help us connect with God and even to ourselves. So viewing time in, in more of a spiraling way, instead of like a linear way, um, that circling of the church year, you know, we we're in Advent now and Advent's going to come back around next year. And it's, everything is always circling and spiraling and, um, it's kind of a comforting, uh, it's a comfort knowing that we know what's coming, right? (laughs) That 
time is going to unfold in ways that we're familiar with in ways that it's unfolded in the past in ways that it will unfold in the future. So along with, you know, the church, your liturgy ritual, I think there are other things, um, that help us connect and help us belong in our churches and with members of our faith communities that, um, you know, even when we disagree on different things and even though we disagree, um, in drastic ways <laughs> about different things. So writing a book is always, it's always an interesting process. I, I've told people before, I think it's, I think it's a collaboration. It's a collation of our entire life up to that point. What surprised you about writing this book? Number one, what surprised you? And number two, what is the gift you hope this book gives to people who, who read it? Yeah, I think the thing that surprised me most was how generative it was. Meaning, as I was writing about loneliness and belonging, I had tons of ideas and thoughts and curious um, you know, curiosities that came about other things. So just experiencing, and I've heard other people talk about this, but when you're in the process of creating, it generates more creativity. And when you're working on a book for several months and it keeps happening, <laughs> it's like, it's, it's just kind of, it's a gift really to, to know that I'm never going to run out of things to write about or to explore or to, um, <laughs> to think about. So that was, I mean, I think it was surprising mainly because it was just a long period of time where it kept happening. So for me, it just kind of proved, okay, this is true. I've experienced it in little blips in the past, but it can also just keep happening, which was pretty cool. Um, and my greatest hope for this book is that, well, I have a few, I hope that people feel less alone. Um, I hope they know that they're not as alone as they think they are. I hope people, um, can start to notice the ways they belong to themselves, others, and God. And I hope that people will start having conversations about loneliness. Um, for me, the more I have written, talked, and um, even read and studied these topics, um, the less power loneliness has over me. And I really want that for other people. I think a lot of people struggle with loneliness and, um, you know, if I can say it, I'll, you know, give my spiel here. Like if you feel lonely, I just encourage you to find someone safe, someone who will respond with love and, um, patience and just bring it up. Just say, you know, especially now in the pandemic, I'm kind of struggling with loneliness. Are you, and ask a question like, are you, are you too, you know, are you struggling also? And just see where it leads. Um, it, I mean, I guess the worst thing that could happen is someone could say no, and I think they're lying. <laughs> so try again with someone else. But I, I mean, I just really believe that the more we talk about loneliness, the more it's normalized. 
um, the less we will um, be in its grips. Yeah. Well, having having read what you've written, I I believe those gifts are well within the realm of possibility. So thank you for telling your story so honestly. Thank you for talking about it here and uh, helping our listeners. And uh, I pray you continue to feel like you belong because you do. Great. Thank you so much for having me on. don't know about you, but there were several times when I heard Charlotte say something and I, I just felt myself nodding. Yeah, 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 I get that. I've been there. I felt that way. Did you nod at any point? Was there any point where you could see yourself in what she was saying? Any point where you were maybe challenged in what you believe belonging really looks like? That's my hope. Maybe even that you were encouraged that there are other people in the world who feel the way that you feel. Sometimes it's nice to just hear somebody say me too and, and, and just be able to embrace that. Um, for, for anything from um, suffering trauma to you know, what group do I belong to and where do I fit in this world? Charlotte Donlan is a writer who reads, a reader who writes, and a certified spiritual director. She holds an MFA in creative writing from Seattle Pacific University, where she studied creative nonfiction. Her work has appeared in the Washington Post, The Christian Century, Christianity Today, Catapult, The Millions, Mockingbird, and elsewhere. Her first book that recently came out in November of 2020 is called The Great Belonging, How Loneliness Leads Us to Each Other. You can find out more about Charlotte in the show notes. You can find her website where you can order her book, things like that. Thank you for listening. As always, on any of the platforms, Amazon, Spotify, iTunes, if you're streaming on my website, thank you. Again, please rate and review the podcast so that I have some sense of what's going on out there and if anybody's actually listening. Um, and if you need to send me a note, please drop me a note about what you think about what's going on and maybe who you think should be uh, a part of this conversation about wisdom. So, May you, as you go, know that you always belong to the kingdom of a God who created you, who loves you before you did a thing, before you ever made one holy move in any direction. You were well-loved. And may that be the foundation from which you search for the places that you truly belong. Until next time, be well, live wisely. Peace, friends.